We're going to be in the book of Ezra for the next uh, several weeks at least. And so become familiar with it. This would be a book that would be really helpful for you maybe to read um, during your Bible study. There's 10 chapters, so you could read a chapter a day. Do not get distracted by the, the long list of names and, and stuff like that. Those are all in there for a reason. We're just going to have to work through what that reason is. So we're going to be in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. And um, I entitled this message, Why Do We Need Ezra? What's the reason for going through a book like this? What is, what is the purpose for having this in the Bible and, and how are we to understand it? And so I'm going to use a couple of other questions to help answer this question. When we read in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And for the longest time in my life, um, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah was a bit murky. This is going to be a part of the Bible that isn't as familiar with us as some others. You know, this isn't as familiar as the creation story or the book of Exodus. You know, we, we know some of the stories of the judges. We know about Gideon and, and his fleece. We know about Samson and his great strength. We know about David. We know about Goliath. We know about Solomon the wise. We even are familiar in some ways with uh, Isaiah from chapter 6 where he stands before the throne of God in a vision and hears the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. And, and then he says, uh, "Who or send me, Lord, you know, and, and, uh, and we, we're familiar with those kinds of stories. But um, in my life, I wasn't really familiar with what happened after Solomon. It's just kind of a... Of uh, when you read in the book of First and Second Kings, you read in the book of First and Second Chronicles. There's all these kings' names, and they do this, and then there's two kingdoms somehow or other. There's now two kingdoms: Judah and Israel. There's the northern and the southern. And this king did this, and this king walked in the in the, the ways of this father, and so on. And and so in, in a large part, we have this big section of the Old Testament that's a little bit confusing or or just unfamiliar, because then you connect it with all of the prophets, and you read the prophets. And where do they plug in? And then you might read the minor prophets and, and who knows what they're saying and, and how it applies. And so it's, it's something that's difficult. Now, I, I was familiar with the story of Esther, which is about the time uh, in, within a century of, of Ezra. Daniel, which is within a century or so of, of Ezra. So we're familiar with this time. But what's going on in the, in the land of Israel? And we sort of lose touch with that. And I didn't know exactly what it worked with, and I didn't know how it fit in. But this morning, I want to begin that, that journey with you. Because the book of Ezra is very helpful. I want us to look at a couple of passages that will show us why. The first question is, why are the children of God living in Babylon or in Persia? Why are they there? Why are they not living in the, the promised land? God spent so much time in the Torah establishing the boundaries of the land and the reasons why they were going there and then how they got there. So why, why what has happened in the intervening time that, that, that causes them to be in, um, in a totally different nation? Well, this, this morning, 
we're going to look at that. Last week, we looked at three themes that we would see in the book of Ezra. Those three themes were that God's words are firmly fixed in the heavens, that human words are no more than footnotes, and that God's people are justified by faith by trusting in that anchored word. This morning, we're going to look at three times. I did two. Three times, not three themes. Three times in the history of the children of Israel to sort of give us an understanding for how they got to Persia, to Babylon. And as we begin to look back, I want us to do so with our eyes wide open. As we spend the next 30 minutes going through this survey, let's make sure that we see and understand exactly what could have happened or what had to have happened to cause them to be ripped brutally out of the promised land. I mean, the fact that Israel is in exile in the first page of Ezra ought to cause us to be shocked. It ought to cause us to be surprised. How in the world could these people who have gone from slavery to freedom to be back in slavery? So there's three times that we'll look at. The first one is the formation of Israel. This time period of the formation of Israel is important for us to think about. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 8. How is it that these people who had received the promise and the promised land, how is it that they ended up in a totally different country? Why are they not living where God had promised? As you turn there, I want us to remember that God had called one man out of the entire population of the world. He had called that one man Abram. And he had promised that many nations would come from his family. In Genesis, God had promised that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be a blessing to all the nations. Paul tells us that that the culmination of this offspring is the one man, Jesus Christ. And so in the beginning of the Bible, we already are seeing sort of shadows or hints that God has a much bigger plan for his people. It's not just about this one man, Abram. It's also about his son. It's also about his son's sons. And so the nation grows. And thus the formation of the the nation of Israel is a story about redemption. How is God going to redeem his people throughout this? And he chose this one man, Abraham. And we remember, we just studied this uh, earlier this year, at the end of last year, the Exodus. Where God had delivered and unified his people under the glory of his power under the glory of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, under the glory of his defeat of this nation, Egypt. In the Exodus, we don't have an emphasis on slavery because of sin. What we have in Exodus is an emphasis or a picture of God's work on behalf of his people delivering them. So the story begins. It's not necessarily a picture of their sin that made them in bondage. But as we proceed through the Old Testament, we're going to see that that picture of bondage becomes the picture of the slavery that humanity has to sin. And so as we move through this, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is revealing to the children of God what will happen to them if they continue to act faithlessly. And in chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, listen to what it says. It says, if you, this is the, the, the nation of Israel... If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And so in the chapters earlier, we've seen that he's gone blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, and blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come out, come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. When we walk with the Lord, when we follow his commands, this is what he's saying, blessed will you be. Look down a little bit further. There's a lot of cha- verses in this, in this chapter, and I was tempted to read the whole thing, but I, I'm not going to take the time. Jump down to chapter uh, 28, verse 15. He says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses and confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed. Blessed will you be if you follow and obey. Cursed will you be if you reject. Look down in verse 36. He says this, The Lord will bring you and your kings whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. So at the end of the, the list of curses, the greatest curse that is coming is that you will be removed from the land and these nations will come in and take you because of your faithfulness or faithlessness. It gets even worse. Look in verse 41. In verse 41, it says, you shall, um, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And so the formation of the nation of Israel, we saw in the book of Exodus and the, the book of Joshua, they then took the land that God had given them. But the message that God had for them was, if you will walk in my way, if you will follow me, if you will anchor your life to the firmly fixed word of God in heaven, then you will be blessed if you trust. But if you do not trust, if you act faithlessly, if you reject the words of God, the ultimate punishment will be a ripping from the land and a taking into captivity, which must have sounded terrible to these people that had just left slavery. They had been in bondage. God had delivered them greatly. And here he is saying, I'm telling you this, if you are not faithful to me, you will experience this even worse. And this time period for us is is important as we look at the story of Ezra. Because God has said, this will happen if you're faithless. Then we move into the story of the judges. We move into the story of First and Second Samuel where the king comes. And so the second, thing that, the second time that we're going to look at is the time of the kingdom of Israel. The time of the kingdom of Israel. And now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel, if you would. Second Samuel chapter 7. Because as God progresses the children of Israel through the, their lives... He brings judges into their lives because they don't get it. The book of Judges is all about faithless Israel. 
And they go through this cycle of sin, cycle of sin, where they sin and they follow idols and then they're, they're confronted and punished and persecuted. And then they come back where the judge comes in and, and then they, they repent and then they live under this judge and God protects them. And then they begin the cycle again to sin and unbelief and then persecution and punishment and then redemption and sin and so on. And that's the cycle. And at the end of that cycle... The book of Judges, there is no king in all of Israel. And so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so they're living out the cycle of curses that Deuteronomy has said when the nation was formed. And so at the end of that, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, they realize that they can't do this on their own. They need somebody to lead them. We need somebody to lead us. We need a king that would lead us like the kings that lead the other nations. And even in that, if you you look through the book of Deuteronomy, you see that that God was to be their king, and even this is a faithless act. And we see in 2 Samuel where God has chosen a man after his own heart, David, king. He anoints him king. And in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we see the promises that God makes for, uh, to David. And start in verse 8. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 8, uh, Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I, the Lord says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no, no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the the beginnings of this eternal line of David. And this time is important for us as we view the Old Testament history. Because God in this is establishing in a human line an eternal destiny. Now he goes on to say that there will be sin in this line and it will be a terrible sin. When he commits iniquity though, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And why are the children of Israel in Babylon? I mean, God delivered them from Egypt. God set them up in a nation. God gave them a land, gave them homes that they didn't build, gave them crops that they didn't plant. Gave them protection from all their enemies. He even gave them a king to establish their government in the nations. And he established their wherewithal. He established their military might. They were a significant power. How in the world did they end up in slavery? What must have happened? David, an anointed king, the man after God's own heart, was supposed to take God's word, write it down and keep it close to him, that he would read it and know it 
and live it and love it. And if there was a man in the Old Testament that did that, it was David. Absolutely, it was David. But in the reality of the story of humanity, even David's heart was sinful. We know David's story. Even though God had promised that if you will do this, I will be with you. Even David transgressed, murdered Uriah's or Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. That whole story demonstrates the fallen nature of this king. And even though David is the epitome of the good king, after David comes Solomon, who started out well. The Lord says, what can I give to you? And instead of riches and long life and power, he just asks for wisdom. God granted him all of that. But Solomon's heart wasn't like David's. He disobeyed the very words that God had revealed to the people in Deuteronomy. He took after himself not one wife, not two wives, not a hundred wives, hundreds of wives. Each one of those wives leading him and pulling him from the Lord. Each one of those wives causing him to follow their idols. Each one of those, those ladies causing him to turn from the Lord of grace and glory. And at the end of Solomon's life, we have this ravaged book of Ecclesiastes where it's, it's a terrible picture of what a life misspent looks like. And then after that, Deuteronomy happens because Rehoboam, his son, acts foolishly as he takes over the kingdom. And within years, the kingdom that God had established is now ripped in two. And there's two kingdoms now. And after Rehoboam, Rehoboam takes Judah and the southern kingdom, and a man named Jeroboam takes over the, the, the northern kingdom, Israel. And for the next several hundred years, there is not one single king that follows the Lord in the northern kingdom. And the curses begin. The curses that we read in the book of Deuteronomy begin as the king leads his people to disobey Jeroboam sets up a, a number of idols in Mount Carmel and Samaria for them to come and worship at so that they don't go down to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh. And the people begin to follow their king whose heart is far from him. And then there's just this story of, of just, just terror and sinful, wicked evilness in these kings and these people who end up murdering their children on the altars of Moloch as sacrifices. And God's curse comes on the Israel nation. Assyria comes down and begins the curses. There's the final culmination where they rip them from their land. All because of their faithlessness. All because of their disobedience. All because of the reality of their disobedience to the word of God. In Judah's nation... King after king after king followed the way of Ahaz and the evil. There were only like seven kings in all of the history of Judah after Solomon that were good. Maybe that's even a stretch. And eventually, in 700 AD or 700 BC, 600 BC, that time frame, Babylon comes on the picture. And not only is Israel ripped from the land, but so is Judah. 
this is something that ought to cause us to pause. If we read the end of Deuteronomy, there's a long list of blessings that every one of us would would be like, why would we trade that in? And then we come to the list of curses and we're all like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want that to happen. I would never want that to happen. But the rest of the story of the Israelites is just like our story. You and I know the blessings and you and I know the curses. And still you and I willfully, often and with regularity, choose the way of the curse. And so when we begin in in Ezra, we oughtn't be surprised. Because the story of Ezra is the story of you and I, where we find ourselves outside of God's plan. Outside of God's glory, outside of God's precious promises. But the goodness of the story is this, that even though they're in a different land, they really aren't outside of God's plan. They really are outside of God's promises. God's mercy and his grace exceeds all understanding. God is not just the God of the nation, the land. He's not just the God of that location, that GPS spot. He is the God of all the world. And so in the story of Ezra, we see that this great universal God, the omnipresent God, is meeting with the children of Israel in Persia where they're captive. And that's where we find the third time. The third time of Israel is this. It's the exile of Israel. So if you're taking notes, write down there the exile. The first one, we had the formation of Israel, how they became a nation under God. And then the kingdom where, where God established King David and then promised that his kingdom would never fail. And now the exile, how do we find ourselves here? And you'll see there in in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 25. I want you to look there because the story of Ezra starts out that way, doesn't it? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. And remember that in the book of Ezra, it starts this way. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is that third time. How do they find themselves in in Persia? Well, Jeremiah told them what would happen. So in Jeremiah chapter 25, we we can read. What verse are we going to be at? We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. And this is what Jeremiah has said. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you, and to your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands." 
and then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. In verse 8, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Here's Jeremiah telling the children of Israel, you didn't do what the word says. You didn't do what the word says. You have not walked in the ways of the Lord. And punishment is coming. And it did. It did in a terrible way. The king of Babylon came down from the north with terror, with devastation, with power. And his armies just covered the land. Ripping people from their homes, killing and slaughtering animals and people. The destruction for the disobedience of God's promises was terrible. It was terrible, just like God had promised. And that's how we find ourselves in the book of Ezra with the people of God in Babylon. And this section ought to bring us even to tears. We ought to weep at the loss of privilege. This nation had all of the privileges of being God's chosen people above all other peoples. They, for years and years, had enjoyed his sovereign provision and protection. All that he required of them, all he required of them, was their love and devotion. And as we see this, they couldn't do that. We saw that way back in the book of Exodus. And that serves as a picture for you and me. I mean, you and I don't sit over this story and, and look down our noses at those kinds of people because this is the, 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 the story of all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's not a one of us who can succeed here. And the, the, the way the message goes, the gospel flows through here, is that the crux or the cross of redemption is you and I, cannot save ourselves, we will end up in bondage and we must be saved. That's the point of the Old Testament. Even the most privileged people failed. God is love, but human beings, sinful. And this message today, this, this passage that we're in, is just evidence of the sinfulness of sin. They should be in paradise but they chose themselves over God. They chose their worship. They chose their pleasure. They chose their vocation. They chose their families over God. And this is what it looks like. It's a powerful thing. The answer to the questions, why are the children of God living in Persia and not in Israel? The answer is this. 
clear and simple, rebellion, idolatry, sin, sin, sin. You can read the prophets and see time after time, they choose to rebel against God. They choose their own pleasure. They choose to fill their own pockets. They choose to build their own reputation. They choose to satisfy themselves time after time after time as if there is not a God, as if he doesn't even exist. That's why they ended up in Persia. Weeks, months, years, decades of sinful rejection of God. Generations of ignoring, generations of banishing God's word to the fringes, always looking to the one who would deliver them, but never trusting the one who spoke. Powerful thing. Powerful thing. That's why they're there. And I want to say, why do we need the book of Ezra? Why do we need it? Because Ezra serves as a reminder. Ezra serves as, a, as evidence that on their own they failed. But Ezra shows us that God never fails even though they chose to reject him even though they chose to ignore them he called them he worked in them what part does Ezra play in the big picture of redemption the big picture of the Old Testament there's a couple things that stood out to me as I've as I've been preparing this in Ezra we see how God sets up a priest as one who will wear the holy garments, but doesn't sit over the the grand scheme of the Solomonic uh, huge administration. In the book of Ezra, we see a, a pared down version of the reality of the nation. They don't have a king. They don't have a king anymore. There's not a king leading the nation. What a perfect presentation or preparation for the church in 400 years. God is working in this to bring about the truth. In Ezra, we see that God's hand is still firmly on the wheel of his plan. And God is guiding it inexorably to its culmination in the life and the death and the reign of his son, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's where Ezra falls. Do you realize that the priest in the book of Ezra that is crowned is named Jesus? What a great story. The book of Ezra is a reminder for you and I. We don't identify with kings. We don't identify with the the whole priestly situation where where when they inaugurated the Temple of Solomon, they sacrificed 22,000 bulls. We can't see that. We don't understand that. But the book of Ezra helps us to understand and to see the reality of the individual work that God does in souls. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that God hasn't changed even now. Even today, God hasn't changed. In the book of Ezra, technology hasn't improved, even though technology in Ezra is much better than it was in the Exodus. But the people's situation is still the same. There are so many more politics in the book of Ezra than there were earlier. But politics can't bring about lasting change. Social improvements of living conditions, education, or health care doesn't improve the dark heart of humanity. And the story of Ezra helps us to see that God hasn't changed. We need the message of Ezra. We need to see where we fit in God's story. We need to see that it is God's word that is revealing and redeeming his people. That's the message for you and I. 
We need to look back, way back to his promises. And then you and I need to rest on those promises. Thousands of years later, God hasn't changed. And the story of Ezra is thousand years after these things are written. And yet they walk through life according to the truths of the Torah. God hasn't changed. God is active now. One of the themes of the book of Ezra is about God's hand. It's just a great picture. We're going to see, I think it's in chapter 6. Hand, his hand, his hand, his hand, his hand, all the way through. Church, you and I need to rest in this. God's hand is active even now. God is still saving people. God is still guiding people. God is still delivering people. God is the same. And the book of Ezra is going to help us to see this. This world is a huge cycle of slavery, bondage, slavery, bondage, ending in death. One of the surprising news stories that I, 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 I'm shocked didn't receive much coverage. Did you hear about the, the, uh, the law enforcement uh, raid that saved 39 sex trafficked kids last week? Did you see that? 39, didn't even show up on the news, but maybe once or twice, maybe as a, as a banner across the bottom. But what about for those kids? Their deliverance, slavery, today. All of our talk about, you know, virtue signaling for, you know, BLM, Black Lives Matter. But this is true slavery. No message. But church, we, we, are living in a time where you and I have the message of hope. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of Ezra. It's the hope of Jeshua. It's the hope of Zerubbabel. It's the hope of Nehemiah. It's the hope of the people of God through the ages that God is still active and is still at work. The book of Ezra pointing us to Jesus Christ. We look back to Jesus Christ and Ezra says, hey, pay attention. This is the hope. Why do we need Ezra? This is why God delivers from slavery. They were actively slaves because of their sin, but God brought them forth. At no time ought we ever forget that it is God alone who is our Savior. As we read this, we're always reminded to look to him alone. Why do we need the book of Ezra? It's because God works through individuals. And I look around at all of us individuals. And the book of Ezra is about God working through people. It's not lumped into a general thing. He names people. He counts people. This is who God is working through. And we need this today, church, because this is us. God is still working through us. So often we look at the news. We look at everything that seems to be going so far away from us doesn't touch us. But the story of Ezra touches us. It's about homes. It's about families. It's about communities that God is at work in. The story of Ezra is a story of a people made up of individual people. None of us are off the hook. Think about this in your life. God has placed you here. God has placed you here. God placed his church at Crystal Springs in North Dakota for a reason. I am so thankful to see Israel back here. Think of this. 
Israel sitting back here? I've talked to him a number of times about why is he here? He's here because he was afraid that his children would not hear the word of God. And now I look at Wayne, who's here, an individual God placed here. I look at Pat. God placed Pat here. I look at Clayton. Church, this is the power of the gospel at work. It's not something out there. It's not theoretical. God placed us here so that first, Wayne, you could hear the gospel. Pat, so that you could hear the gospel. Clayton, so that you could hear the gospel. That's why God placed you here. God placed you, Pat, here so that Ashley could come and hear the gospel. What a grace. What a grace in that. And God placed y'all here so that our community could hear the gospel, could know about this great God, the God of Ezra, whose hand is firmly on the steering wheel. God placed us here so that our children could be exposed to this message and so that our community could hear about this great God. This story is about individuals. The reason we have the book of Ezra is because we are living in a different part of the same story. That story hasn't ended yet. We are actively living in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are a part of that. We're going to read here in just a minute what God has given us. And he says, behold, I am with you always. In our life, we are living a part of the gospel. There are people in our community. There are people in our community who are dying without the good news of Jesus Christ. They are just like the darkness that we've been reading about. But God placed you here. He placed me here. He gave us the gospel. He gave us the hope. We're part of this story. I love the book of Ezra because it's us. We've been delivered. Now let's go and share this gospel the way they did. What a powerful truth. We need the book of Ezra because God punishes sin completely. And that's something for each one of us to be challenged by. Being ripped from the promised land wasn't a slap on the wrist. It was an utter, utter punishment. There's no mistaking that the children of God were punished for their sins extremely and in a separately humiliating manner. They were divorced from the land. This is the truth about every one of our sins. God deals with sin always completely and thoroughly. And I know that feels bad, and that's a yucky thing to talk about, but this is the gospel. This is the message of the cross. Either you will experience the wrath of God as he rips you from this life and transfers you to hell, or someone will step in and experience the wrath of God for you. This is the sacrificial system that we'll see when we get into the book of Ezra as, as he goes about it, but it's more perfectly reflected in the cross where Jesus took upon himself the sin of his children. God stirs the heart, just like in the book of Ezra. He still stirs hearts. 
He still sovereignly works in people to return to Him in repentance and love. I had a refreshing opportunity this week to present the gospel to a family. And I was nervous. I was trepidatious about speaking the truth. It was hard. It was emotional. But preparing this sermon has really helped me to just rest on the Lord. Except the Lord builds the house, they that labor build it in vain, or they that build it labor in vain. And I recognize that it wasn't really me that was their hope, but it was the gospel. And that's the message of Ezra, God stirring hearts. The message of Ezra is this. God will be worshipped according to his own will, not ours. I can't wait till we break that down. God will be worshipped the way he wants to. In the Bible, God has given a multitude of directions, a multitude of commands for our lives to conform to his will. And he doesn't mess around with this. Exile is a very real thing. And God is very specific in what that looks like. The story of Ezra provides a solid base for us to build our lives upon in the return of the people of God to the life and teaching of the word of God. The curses are real. But church, the blessings are real. The blessings are real. Both of them are found in the person of Jesus Christ. The curses are found in Jesus Christ. Either you will be cursed because you have refused to submit to the Lord, in which case it will be Jesus who stands against you because you've rejected him. Or you will be blessed because you were saved by the very act of Jesus Christ taking his, your curse upon himself. And this is the free gift that God offers everyone in Christ. Just turn from your sin, repent and believe and you will be saved. In which case Jesus will stand up for you in the final judgment. Don't let this morning pass without returning to him. Don't let this morning pass without returning to Jesus. Come unto him. Repent and believe. I'd love to talk to you. If you have any questions about this, if, you have, if, if there's something that you're wondering about, please come talk to me. There's a number of people in here that you can talk to. But let's work this out. Let's work this out. The grace and the greatness of the gospel in the Old Testament is that God kept his promise. And the reality is that even though the people couldn't do it on their own, God did. He saved them. And the message today is this. You can't do it on your own. You can't. You can never do it on your own. You must turn to Christ. Come to Christ today, won't you? Get into his word. Anchor your life on it and glorify the Lord. You need it. Your family needs it. The community needs it. And we have the privilege to do it. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy and you are wonderful and we need you. Christ, work in souls today. Work in me that I would love you and trust you. Work in us that we would turn to you and walk in your ways. We can't do it on our own, Lord Jesus. We need you in us. Glorify yourself in this church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.